There's often been argument, sometimes by rather grand philosophers, about whether you can ever really talk about a piece of music. Is it actually possible for music to be a piece, a self-contained thing, autonomous like an object? If it is, then where is this thing? Is it the printed score? A score makes no sound, and most people can't read it. And anyway, a lot of music is never even written down. So is it the performance? But no performance can ever be the same as any other. So is one performance the piece, and all the others not the piece, or are they all different pieces? And what happens when a composer completely rewrites a piece? He might consider the new piece to be simply a better version of the old one, but for us, they may be more like two different pieces. This tangle of hoary old questions becomes oddly interesting when you look at the music of Charles Ives. A composer who almost never seems to have regarded what he wrote as finished, in the very sound of his music, and in Ives's dense and almost unreadable handwritten scores, you can see that for him, what he was writing was less an object, a thing, a piece, than a moment, or rather a series of moments from a far larger idea than we in the audience ever get to hear. What he had in his head. Was a work in never-ending progress. It was something mutable, living like a tree in a garden, always sprouting new shapes and colours. And for Ives, the mutability of what he heard in his head was so overwhelming that it became almost the subject of his art, which makes talking about his orchestral work, Three Places in New England, tricky. For me, Ives's first orchestral set, as he sometimes called it, or Three Places in New England, or even a New England Symphony, is quite simply a blazing masterpiece. But that's an odd thing to say because this work is still not really a piece. For years, he chopped and changed it, scribbled and scrawled on the pages of the different scores he made. Sometimes he wrote over the top of what was there without even bothering to cross out the previous version, taking bits out and putting bits in, making things ever more complicated, or sometimes unexpectedly simple. What remains is less a piece than a labyrinth of possibilities, a maze of interwoven sounds. But that, for me, is what makes this music marvelous.
Though he tried putting his three movements in several different orders, at some point Ives does seem to have decided that this music would be the opening of his New England set or symphony, the first of his three places. It's the beginning of what he often called his Black March, though in most scores it's called the St. Gordon's in Boston Common, and it's subtitled Colonel Robert Gould Shaw and His Coloured Regiment. St. Gordon's refers to a monumental open-air sculpture in the middle of Boston made by Augustus St. Gordon's to commemorate Colonel Robert Shaw's 54th Regiment of the Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, which, we're told, was the first regiment of black soldiers in the Union Army in the Civil War. So, this music is not only about a place, but about how its composer in 1911, which is when he began writing it, thought about history, war, the struggle against slavery, and of course, the painful issue of the place of black people in America. My Black March. Ives even wrote a poem to go with the music, a sort of description of the St. Gordon's Monument. And it begins, Moving, marching, faces of souls, marked with generations of pain, part freers of a destiny. Ives's profoundly humane political attitudes are fascinating and would take a whole programme on their own. But for now, what's worth remembering is that this isn't just pretty scene painting, but it's music with a political and moral subtext. Let's look a little more closely at this opening, indeed at the very opening chord. It's typical of this composer's subtlety, which some people think of as complicated, but which in several ways is surprisingly simple. A plain chord of A minor in the bass has a different chord, A minor's harmonic opposite, D sharp minor, placed on top of it. Ives treats this combination of opposites not as conflict, but as haunting resolution and perhaps there's some politics in that idea alone. He then scores the chord as a gentle swell in the strings with deep timps and bass drum underneath. And behind the breathing or sighing of this chord, he introduces another sigh. Here's the first labyrinth of the labyrinth, three simple chords beautifully combined to make a restless, ambiguous sound, setting the scene for everything that follows. Out of this chord emerges a stream of different voices, which, taken all together, at first hearing, make an almost impenetrable web of sound.
Once again, Ives's art of combining different things becomes clearer when you start separating the lines out from one another. But there's more to it than that. James Sinclair, a great Ives scholar, has noticed that in each of these separate and sometimes contradictory lines, Ives plays with echoes or memories of some very famous old American songs, songs not unrelated to the political content of this music that I mentioned earlier. For instance, there's the old gospel anthem, "Jesus Loves Me." Yes, Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. And there's this scrap of Stephen Foster's song, "Old Black Joe," a white man's song about a black man. When you separate out the different lines of what Ives is doing here, you can find echoes of these wonderful sugary old melodies all over the place. Here, for example, in the first violins. I spoke of these different lines as echoing the old tunes, and you could describe the whole effect as rather like what you might hear in a huge echoing space, where the ear moves freely between a multitude of clashing voices and overtones. I wonder whether you noticed what the double basses were doing there. It's the beginning of a kind of slow march. Remember, Ives used to call this his Black March, 
by which I suppose he meant that the St. Gordon's Monument had suggested a funeral march in memory of those first black soldiers who'd laid down their lives on the Union side in the Civil War. It's a notorious trick of Ives's imagination that once he allows his music to settle into a particular motion, he'll soon start restlessly teasing at the textures, adding extra lines. So quite soon, on top of the web of different string voices, other instruments start to throw in their own echoes and memories. Sometimes these are so small that in the thick orchestral sound you hardly notice how the composer will suddenly introduce the oboe, for example. Then, a moment later, the flute. Then the clarinet. All the different voices are in some way dissonant to one another, but it's part of the miracle of Ives's inner ear that he was able to hear them as joined together. None of these different elements clashes or stands too far away from the rest. Another composer might have called this movement a processional. The funeral or memorial procession gradually comes closer, becomes clearer in the mind's ear, and eventually rises to an impassioned climax before fading away again into the distance. It's a simple enough idea, but what care Ives takes, what different images we meet along the way. When we reach the climax of this memorial procession, Ives draws together what we've heard before, but he takes immense trouble to give each line and image a feeling of the new. So although this is quite a romantic climax in a way, the dense and careful detail doesn't let us simply wallow in the sound. We find ourselves, well at least I certainly do, drawn into a world of contradictions where if I don't pay attention, I might well miss something.
After the climax, Ives' procession carries on and in the closing bars it disappears into the distance. The effect is quite simple. But Ives' detail is extraordinary. For example, there's a beating rhythm in the timps and bass drum which sounds regular, but it's not. And in the very last chord, a simple plagal cadence, a churchy amen is transformed by the addition of extra notes from the harp and violas into something quite different. Ives had strong views about this ending, for he tried to explain it in the last verse of the poem that he wrote to go with this music. Above and beyond that compelling mass rises the drumbeat of the common heart in the silence of a strange and sounding afterglow. If Ives intended that poem as an explanation of what he meant by his Black March, he accompanied the next movement, the second of his three places in New England, not with a poem but with a rather long prose text, to show how the music tells a story, almost like that of a child's picture book, which is appropriate because the story concerns a child. The time, Ives tells us, is the great American holiday, the 4th of July, Independence Day. The New England place is Putnam's camp in the state of Connecticut. This was apparently where General Putnam and his soldiers spent a difficult winter in the middle of the war against the British. The place survives. It's a few scattered ruins in the open air, and it's a monument to the heroism of the revolutionary soldiers. So once again, this isn't just scene painting, but music with a political and even moral subtext. It's about America, what it means to be American. I'll come back to the story of the child in a moment, but first I want to look at a peculiarly Ivesian aspect of the way this movement is constructed. In 1903, Ives wrote a comical little orchestral piece called Country Band March. It's an affectionate depiction of the rather chaotic amateur bands he remembered from his youth. It begins like this. Nine years later, in 1912, 
I've started writing Putnam's Camp, and it begins like this. So the beginning of Putnam's Camp is the country band march, but Putnam's Camp doesn't go on being the country band march. Further on in it, we come to new music, which goes like this. And this music comes from a completely different piece of Ives's, the overture to an opera that he began several years before but never finished. It was going to be all about the revolution, and the title of the overture is simply 1776. It's not done much nowadays, so you'll have to excuse the rather scratchy old recording. Done in this second of the three places in New England is splice together four different chunks of two completely different earlier pieces. It's a startling example of Ives's willingness to subject his own music to constant reworking and reinvention. So now to the story Ives tells us that Putnam's Camp is about, for this quickly reveals why he spliced these two earlier pieces together in this way. Let's follow it through, more or less, as he tells it. A small child finds himself at a Fourth of July picnic at Putnam's Camp, complete with food and drink and celebrations and hymns from the local church and children's songs, and the local cornet band. Hence, the use of the old country band music. The cornet band is feeling pretty merry, and they're not all playing together, as you can hear vividly if you slow down these opening bars. <laughs> Later on, there's yet more rhythmic invention. You probably noticed the British grenadiers in the flutes there, and we'll come back to that. After a while, the sounds of this crazy country cornet band start to get quieter. Ives tells us in his story that the child has wandered away from his playmates in the main picnic area. He wants to try and catch sight of the revolutionary soldiers of long ago. The tunes of the band and the songs of the children grow fainter and fainter, says Ives. 
Eventually, the tired child sits down on the pretty New England hillside of laurel and hickories. At this point in the story, something extraordinary happens. In front of the tired child, there appears the figure of a mysterious and lofty woman, the goddess of liberty herself. And there in the background, played by flute and oboe, you can hear the faint bugles of those 18th century soldiers that the child wanted to see. Ives continues, The goddess pleads with the soldiers not to forget their cause and the great sacrifices they've made for it, but they march out of the camp with fife and drum to a popular tune of the day. And there it is again the British Grenadiers. Except that it isn't. Ives tells us that that tune was much loved and sung by the revolutionary soldiers, and to very different words. Lift up your head, my heroes, and swear with proud disdain, the wretch who would enslave you, that's us, the British, shall spread his snares in vain. Should Europe empty all her force, we'd meet them in array, and shout and shout and fight and fight for brave America. fascinating things about the way Ives cross-cuts, interweaves and layers all these musical elements is how he uses different rhythmic streams. Later on, when the child has awoken from his dream of olden times and run back down the hill to join the picnic party, Ives divides the whole orchestra into two quite different bands. One of them is playing march music in 4-4. At the same time, the rest of the orchestra is playing a completely different piece in triple time, a quick waltz. When you hear them separately like that, it's hard to imagine what they'd sound like together. Mm -hmm. 
exuberant dividing up and layering of the orchestra gets even more complicated in the closing bars of Putnam's Camp. There was yet another reference to a famous all-American tune just before the trumpet fanfare. Listen to the last few seconds again, played by the upper strings and the right hand of the piano. It's curious how, when you take an individual strand of sound like that, the jokey reference to the beginning of the Star-Spangled Banner at the end sounds almost more obvious. Although it's being played right through the orchestra, it's an effect which seems more hidden when the whole band is playing together. It's the easiest and cheapest thing in the world to say about Ives, but it really is extraordinary to think of him writing this music so long ago, before the First World War. So much of what he does sounds more modern, whatever that means, or at any rate more daring than what many composers do today. And the same could be said of the last of his three places in New England, the Housatonic at Stockbridge. The beautiful little town of Stockbridge, once a 17th century Christian mission to Native Americans, is in the far west of Massachusetts in the Berkshire Hills. It's the only one of Ives's three places I myself have seen, and Ives specially liked it because he and his wife, as he fondly remembered, went there on their honeymoon. Here Ives again supplies a text, though not his own this time, but part of a poem by Robert Underwood Johnson. Contented river, in thy dreamy realm, the cloudy willow and the plumy elm, thou hast grown human, labouring with men at wheel and spindle, sorrow dost thou ken you can see once again that what inspired Ives was not just the idea of a pretty place. In other words, what interests the poet, and I think the composer too, is the idea of a place where nature and human beings have touched one another through work. It's the idea of America, of being in America and being American, that Ives is thinking of though where the first movement was about the Civil War and the second about the Revolution, this third one is about the early pioneers, the first European settlers. Ives is travelling back in time.
where the previous two movements had referred respectively to civil war songs and revolutionary marches, here that gorgeous melody seems to evoke, in fact it's probably adapted from, one of the old hymns that the Pilgrim Fathers brought over the Atlantic with them. Ives rewrote this movement many times. He even turned it into a song and fitted the poet's evocative words to the tune. In its surviving orchestral versions, this beautiful water music at the opening is one of Ives' subtlest layerings of different instruments playing different music at different speeds and all at the same time. He divides the violins into three layers. The first is playing little twisting ripples in a very complex relationship to the conductor's beat. The second layer exists in the same rhythmic field, but with some of its notes picked out and supported by the harp. Put just those lines together and the effect is curiously elusive. Ives then adds a third layer of violins and violas in a different rhythm. And then, underneath, there's the cellos and basses, and later the bassoons, playing traditional harmonies like the music of an old-fashioned hymn or metrical psalm. This clearly looks back, like the big tune, to the traditions of the first Protestant settlers of long ago. I spoke earlier of how Ives, once he'd set in motion a particular texture and colour, loved to fiddle with it, to make it richer and more complex with each succeeding bar. And the Housatonic at Stockbridge is an especially good example of this. Bit by bit, Ives adds one new layer of sound after another. The result is an acoustic web, 
an extraordinarily complex fabric of many different strands, which, as so often with this composer, don't clash, but mysteriously combine to suggest an almost otherworldly musical perception. About halfway through this piece, for example, he introduces several new strands in the woodwind parts, with threes and fours and fives flowing gently in and out of one another. At the same time, the celesta and harp also get going. The harp part here is astoundingly difficult, so it's a mercy that Ives marks it PPP indistinctly. What he wants is the effect of something right on the edge of what we can hear. And at the same time as these new instrumental lines start up, the violas break away from the rest of the strings with new music of their own. It's as though at each bend in its winding course, the river Housatonic were getting deeper and flowing with ever greater power. After all this gentle swirling and flowing, the end of the Housatonic at Stockbridge is rather unexpected. Suddenly the river rises up and almost seems to burst its banks. The poem gives the clue. The river has reached the Atlantic Ocean. Wouldst thou away, dear stream, come, whisper near, I also of much resting have a fear. Let me tomorrow thy companion be, by fall and shadow, to the adventurous sea. Here's how Ives uses those words in the ending of his piano and voice version. While not terribly good poetry, that's a fine manifesto for the kind of man and the kind of artist that Ives himself was. 
He was definitely someone who had a fear of resting, who longed for the adventurous sea. Not the real sea, of course, but the unexplored oceans of music and human invention that he knew were out there. But typically, as you heard there at the end, like any artist who loves to play with memory, Ives brings back an echo of the gentle opening, just as he'd done in the first movement, his Black March. It's a reminder to us not only of where the river flowed from in the opening bars, but of how far the river of Ives's imagination has taken us in the course of this piece. In the orchestral version, the sound of a few lonely muted strings emerges out of the tumult. It's like going from darkness into light, or light into darkness. Your ears blink for a moment. Ives is such an exhilarating composer. He's one of the great adventurers of music, and that, of course, didn't make his artistic life easy. There were few around him who understood what he was doing or even wanted to listen to what he was composing. And the fact that he kept revising and rewriting and changing and reinventing everything he wrote didn't make it easy for him either. Like all adventurers, he was always on his way somewhere, journeying, not arriving. And the result is a music like no other. Not only did the man never seem to stand still, but his music never stands still either and it's not meant to. Three Places in New England is not so much a single piece, or even three movements, as music which yearns for us to listen to it again and again in a multitude of different ways. And every time we listen, we can be sure that we'll hear something new, something we never heard before.